First on film and entertainment, yes indeed, the cavalcade of stars is back. Jackie Hamilton, I think she's with us on the odd occasion when she deems it appropriate. Jackie, you've seen all these movies. What have you been doing? You've been in darkened places all of a sudden again. It's great. Yes, loving it, Alex. Good movies out at the moment too. Well, it's the time of the year. Well, let's be honest, from late November till around about now, when we, we get to see 99% of all the Oscar nominations, which of course came out this week, and the movie that I picked at the time, I'm going to applaud myself and everybody else who thought that Oppenheimer was the best film of the year. It is going to win best film and it also win best director. Will it not, Jacqueline? Oh, quite possibly. And um, uh, they're, they're, I wouldn't have a problem with that at all. Yeah. Mm. Peter Krause, you agree? Uh, I'm hesitant because I think the Academy might uh, produce some surprises. We're only talking about those two top categories. You think they, they're going to be surprised? They, they'll surprise us, will they? Yeah, look, Oppenheimer is a front runner, I agree, but there are some very strong films uh, and directors nominated. But it's interesting. The moment I saw that film, I said no other film will top it, and it's proven to be the case as far as I'm concerned, Greg King. Do you believe or not that they will? That film will win the top two awards. At the moment, it seems to be the front runner. Um, so possibly will probably. I don't expect any upsets uh, in that category this year. Mm. Well, we're going to be talking about at least one film, which is very much a contender today, and the star of it is somebody who's starring in two of the best films of the last twelve months. So, you know, you can you can go through that. I'm still going through my angst, though, Peter Krause. Do you know why? Why? Because the delightful Margot Robbie, if this is true, is going to spend more time producing and directing than she is acting in the foreseeable future. And she's at the peak of her power. Why would that happen? Let her decide her career path as uh, she sees fit. We, we love her dearly. It's It's like... It's like seeing the fall of Novak Djokovic, right? Is it the fall? Is it the beginning of the end? Hopefully not. No, it's not like that at all, but I thought I'd... I, I haven't worked Essendon into the conversation yet, but by the end of the show, rest assured I will. I also want to talk today on First on Film and Entertainment about one of the best plays I have ever seen. In the, in the thousands of plays I've seen, this is in the top 20 of all time. So I will talk about that as well today. But let's kick things off with, uh, I'd like to start where I referenced this film without a name in the last few minutes, Anatomy of a Fall. It's this stunning MA-rated two-hour, 32-minute film, really naturalistic crime drama, unquestionably one of the films of the year, concerning the trial of a German-born writer by the name of Sandra Voiter, played by Sandra Huller. And it's convenient, isn't it, uh, that the first name is the same? But there you go. Um, not only her first name, and we'll get to that in a moment. Having said that, she, this is about her trial and the events leading up to it. With her husband, Samuel Molesky, again, played up by another Samuel, Samuel Thies, and their son, Daniel Milo Bachado Grainer, this woman, Sandra Voiter, moved to a remote mountain chalet in the French Alps. Very nice. Their now 11-year-old son, who is visually impaired, that, that's the result of an accident that he had when he was four. So basically, wife, husband, and son are in this remote mountain chalet. And the boy goes for a walk in the snow. 
with their dog Snoop. He returns home and discovers his father's bloodied body lying at the foot of the chalet. So the question is, did he commit suicide or was he murdered? Molesky was a teacher. He was a wannabe author and he had a conflicted relationship with his wife. Much of that dated back to the circumstances surrounding the boy Daniel's accident. And this film, Anatomy of a Fall, peels back the layers of the family dynamic. It reveals the characteristics of each of the central players. So Sandra is driven. Samuel is hamstrung. Daniel is sensitive. Also in play are the lawyers and the witnesses in the trial. So it turns into this tightly wound thriller in which the truth proves elusive. Really brilliantly written and executed. We talk about this all the time on this program, how important the writing is. The revelations, the tension at every turn are apparent. And it's the work of the director, Justine Triet and Arthur Harari, uh, who have an excellent handle on the material. Nor could I have any been sort of any more praiseworthy of the performances led superbly by Sandra Huller in one of the performances of her life. Just, she's a great actor. And I totally believe she was the intelligent, self-absorbed character that she was playing. I can say the same about Milo Machado Grainer as the piano-playing youngster in a rather invidious situation that he's trying to understand and make sense of. Most invidious, I should say. And Samuel Teese, the father, although he's frequently referenced, he only comes into his own late in the piece. There's a, one stunning scene in which he argues with his wife. So choice words are exchanged in that, and it's one of the many highlights of this film. Playing a pivotal role in proceedings is the legal counsel for Sandra, an old friend called Matra Vincent Renzi, played by Swan R. Lord. And he's really impressive in his characterization. Renzi, the uh, counsel, the legal counsel, comes across as warm and responsible, but also thorough and inquisitive. And then you've got the prosecutor in the form of this devious, flamboyant advocate general, as played with a lot of flair by Antoine Reinhardt's. And you might not like his character, but you can't but help admire his tactics. And I suppose my plaudits on an anatomy of a fall don't stop there. The secondary players also ensure everything about this film feels real, uh, using that word authentic again. There's so much to unpack, appreciate and savour in what turns out to be a really unsettling psychological journey. You've got to go and see this film, folks. It's a ripper of a movie. It runs for two hours, 32 minutes. It's called Anatomy of It's MA rated. Jackie, you only saw it last night. What did you I think? did. Mm. I did, and I, I, there's nothing I disagree with you about uh, uh, that, Alex. And in fact, it's so real that it's almost, almost embarrassing to watch it because I felt like an intruder into their personal lives, um, and that comes from both the dialogue and the performances, which, as you said, every one of them is spot on, right down to the smallest roles, and some of that comes from the camera work too, when you're seeing the the faces as the camera pans uh, through the the um, people who have come to watch. Uh, we don't get to know anything of them, but just the way their faces are expressing reaction to what's going on during the courtroom scenes, um, you know, that adds to the drama. Uh, now, so, a couple of... Tw- let, sorry, let me just ch- stop you there. I found it really interesting because we're used to, if you like, our way of the courtroom. It's a totally different dynamic in in... 
the in, in the court case here, the European, the the, the you, what I'd call a, a unique European style uh, of proceedings. And I was reading about it. Apparently, that's 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 what does happen. So people are interrupting and all that sort of stuff that we're not used to in the Australian court setting. Did you find that strange? Um, I, I I adapted or, or understood it quite quickly. It didn't trouble me at all. The, the Perhaps the only thing that did trouble me, and this is not a spoiler at all, is that the young boy Daniel is allowed to be um, uh, watching proceedings. He's a major witness yes. um, and is called upon to be to speak as a witness uh, during the trial, but he's also in the courtroom uh, listening to everything going on uh, that went uh, between his parents, including recordings that were made before, obviously, before the father, yes. his father passed away. So I found that extremely unsettling, if you're talking about the way that the court process was going yeah. on. I don't know if we would have that here, would we? I I, I don't I don't believe we would, but I mean that, that I, I wouldn't might, think so. But but I I, I mean I'm presu- I can only presume it's real there. I, I there's there's quite a bit of distressing content here as well. Um, and I'm not just talking about human. Um, uh, you know, there, there's elements, I, and that's what also makes it so real. But yeah, it's a pretty extraordinary film, Jackie. I mean, would you agree? It's certainly it's certainly in my top ten film. I mean. It, I know we're extending this beyond uh, the, the real top ten of 2023, uh, but I can't. This this is going to be in my top films of 2024. No question about it. Well, probably, but it's only January. The one thing that I'd like to mention that I found really interesting about it was it's like the the mental stimulation while you're watching this film, mm. seeing the layers of how it's gone on of the wife writing uh, as a novelist writing books based on things that snippets or incidents or people that are in her real life or that she knows of and then that comes back to should we say bite her on the bum when she's up there uh, um you know giving evidence about how this whole incident has come about i found the layers that it's written written into that really really fascinating i think it must be re- very the, the context of the mother being with the son but being limited in terms of interaction that is really fascinating in terms of you're dynamic. talking about towards the end of the film and i think that um um although it's a very strong drama throughout those couple of twists towards the end uh really ramp up the tension really yeah. pull yeah. it all in and um as i say i was it, 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 at times, it's almost quite excruciating, but fascinating. I like watching a car crash in a way, yeah. but really fascinating. The claustrophobic nature of it, Peter, really struck me while I was watching it. And I'm thinking, good golly, not only how do you write something like this, but how do you act it and the pure way that it was acted? Absolutely. It, it's it's a superb film. Uh, just in, in Trier, um, who uh, uh, directed this film and co-wrote it with uh, Arthur Harari, has made five films previously, but this one is her major breakthrough film and uh, receiving five Oscar nominations. And And what is so interesting is how writing screenplay is so fundamental to a, a really good film. And just like The Holdovers, um, I think uh, Anatomy of a Fall has an exemplary screenplay, beautifully written, carefully observed. Uh, It has echoes of films like Marriage Story, 
in terms of the dissecting of a marriage, and also of Saint Omer in terms of the courtroom, the French system of trials, etc. So there are uh, sort of references that uh, other films have made. Beautifully acted, uh, Sandra Hüller, uh, who's a, a German actress who's been around for a while, was in Tony Erdmann, uh, Sissy and I, uh, I'm Your Man, etc. A really uh, accomplished actress and uh, also coming up in Zone of Interest. And she has really um, been given a role that is uh, so superb and so beautifully uh, nuanced in terms of her character. Absolutely brilliant film, had me riveted uh, from go to woe. Uh, and I also highly recommend people go and see it. Yeah, folks, don't miss it. Greg, you're the missing piece of the puzzle. What did you think? Oh, nice to be missing something anyway. Um, the title also reminded me of the um, film Anatomy of a Murder, which is a lengthy courtroom trial as well. Um, now, Peter mentioned St. Amir, which was in cinemas last year, which I didn't particularly appeal like, but this one really grabbed me. Um, the courtroom scenes had a lot more tension the way they were played out. You mentioned the claustrophobic feel, which comes from the close-ups there as well. Um, also, I like the fact that the ambiguity of what actually happened. We don't know, even by the end of the film, whether it was accident, um, suicide or a murder. Um, there's one scene in the, in the courtroom trial where they have a flashback to um, discussion between Sandra and her husband, um, and then it break, erupts into an argument. But we don't know what happened in that argument because all we do then is get a um, replay of um, a recording of that argument there. So it's still ambiguous what happened, who did what there. So I like the ambiguity of it all as well. As you said, it's really well written, really well directed and staged and and um, ribbon from start to finish. No, it's good. We So, okay, we're all going to be high bars. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking that Peter will be the highest, but let's, let's see. We'll start with you, Jackie. Yeah, I'll go for a nine on this. Yes. Uh, I, and also, I'm glad that Peter mentioned Marriage Story because Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver, was it? Yeah. Because that was flashing through my mind the whole way, and that, again, was like an uh, excellent film. So it was nice to be reminded of that. Yeah, so it's Anatomy of a Fool, MA rated 152 minutes. I, I, would, I was going to say you'll give it a nine, so I... I wish I'd said it ahead of you saying it. There we go. Uh, Greg, I reckon you'll also give it a, an eight and a half to a nine. Go for it. What is it? Yeah, eight, eight, so eight and a half, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay, I'm g- g- going to give it a nine out of ten without any question. And Peter, where's your high mark? Go on, give me a ten. Uh, definitely a ten out of there ten. There you go. Me. It's a brilliant yes. film. You're Two so- weeks in a row, Peter. You're going to ten. Ten yeah. out of ten. Right, hang on. What, what was the other one last week? Um, the whole I was a gave a ten to as well. Oh, Correct. You're so predictable, Peter. What can I say? Uh, I knew you were going to say that. He's hey? being very gen- generous. He's being very ah oh, right. I get this is controversial. So you're giving it a nine. He's giving it a ten. And and yes, okay. No, I'm talking about the holders being generous. Excuse me. When are you going to admit that you got it wrong for the holdovers, Jackie? When are you going? I I I've dangled that carrot in front of your nose personally. Ever since you said, oh, did you walk out of it? Maybe not sure, maybe. Yes, yes. Hang on. Where's the penance, Jacqueline? Are we... I wasn't in the mood for a comedy. Okay, moving on. Moving on, okay. Um, would, would you see the film again or not? 
Oh, it. well, you keep, I, I'm, I'm almost thinking I have to, but I don't really don't want to waste another two hours of my life. Waste. Ooh. <laughs> Bitter. Sorry, Peter. Sorry, Peter. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't have put it better myself, Peter. Yes, okay. Let, on J88FM, 54 bucks gets you membership. Please go to j-air.com.au, j-air.com.au, and consider joining us. But you can listen for free as well. Okay. Now, The Colour Purple. Now, I have real problems with this film. I like the film if it was a drama. I would like the film if it was an accurate musical. Combining the two, I have major problems with. And, you know, I I came out of this thinking, look, there are there is a lot to like about it. There's a lot to dislike about it. And while I understand and respect the fact this is not Steven Spielberg's The Colour Purple, I still have much greater fondness for the 1985 version, which I thought was excellent. Okay, so where are we? We're in Georgia, 1909, and this film spans 38 years, based around the struggles of African-American Seely Harris. With her sister, Nettie, Seely's brought up by their abusive father, Alfonso, because their mother died some years ago. Alfonso marries off Seely to an equally obnoxious local farmer who happens to be a father of three. His name is Albert Mr. Johnson, known as Mr. And Mr. had designs on the prettier of the sisters, even though it was Seely that he ended up marrying. Seely, who Alfonso beats, Alfonso being their father, simply takes her punishment while Nettie flees to parts unknown. Nettie promises to write to Seely every week. And I, I actually said, I think I said, Seely, who Alfonso beats. I think it's Seely who um, is beaten by, um, was it? Was she beaten by, she beaten by both the father and the husband? Can't remember, guys. Yes, yes. I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, Nettie promises to write to Seely every week. So one sister to the other, which she does. But Alfonso hides those letters so Seely can't see them. And Celie's really impressed by the defiance and spunk shown by a character called Sophia. And she's the lady who marries Mr's son, Harpo. Mr's long shown more than a passing interest in the daughter of the local preacher, a jazz singer by the name of Suge Avery, who visits him when she's back in town. I mean, ideally, Mr would have loved to have gotten together with Suge Avery, but that never happened. So anyway, when she's back in town, Suge visits Mr. I could never quite understand that. Jackie, you might fill that bit in too. What what's the relationship between Mister and Shook? Why 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 are they friends? Do we have any idea of context? I unless I missed that. Well, Peter or Greg, can you help out? No, I can't recall no. that I. No, I found that Shook was a part-time lover of um, Mister. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So maybe they did get together. Okay. Did Peter? Do you remember that? I I don't. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're right, Greg. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, anyway, so when Shug visits Mister, uh, Shug becomes aware of Seely's dire situation, and like Sophia, tries to empower Seely. Still, given Seely's innate good nature, she finds that really difficult—difficult difficult to stand up for herself in the wake of seemingly 
overwhelming odds. So this is a sort of coming-of-age period musical drama directed by Blitz Bazawuli. I don't know. I don't know Blitz Bazawuli, but there you go. The screenplay is by Marcus Gardley, who cut his teeth writing for television. It's based on the stage musical of the same name, which I haven't seen. Okay, so as, and as somebody who generally loves stage musicals, I mentioned at the outset I struggled with *The Color Purple* as a movie musical, and I say that because despite appreciating the music and the dance numbers per se, which I did, um, I thought both were really strong and dynamic. Music and the dance. The singing was rousing, it was impressive, but I just thought that the score and the choreograph, I'll try that again, the score and the choreographed dancing frequently interrupted the narrative and it, it didn't really reflect the tenor of the plot. And what I mean by that is for the first three quarters of the film, the events shown are deeply distressing and yet the music is fundamentally up-tempo and they're dancing in the streets and God knows what else. Why are we doing that? I mean, this, you know, it's hard to comprehend just how subjugated Celia is and both Felicia Pearl Mapasi in the younger role and Fantasia Barino play downtrodden with aplomb. So why are we singing and dancing? And then you've got Halle Bailey injecting a kind streak into young Nettie. Uh, I would have liked to actually see more of her storyline unfold. Danielle Brooks is this dominant figure as the no-nonsense Sophia. Taraji P. Henson brings a zest for life to her portrayal of Shug Avery. And Coleman Domingo and Dion Cole are positively ferocious as Mr. and Alfonso, respectively. I thought the cinematography by Dan Loutson was very powerful and evocative. So, look, it's deeply moving, The Colour Purple. There's no questioning that. But I would have preferred it to have retained its essence without breaking into song and dance. That's my view of The Colour Purple. What about yours, Peter? Look, I tend to agree with you. I, I think there are some dramatic problems uh, with the film um, uh, and I would have liked to have seen the stage musical perhaps just to see the uh, the way the uh, musical has been adapted into a, a cinematic film look when the production when was the last time you actually saw a stage musical when was oh. when, when, when Methuselah was a kid absolutely yes yes, uh, yes so uh, I, uh, I don't buy that I I'm sorry you held us a pork pie I their words quote unquote I would have liked to have seen the musical. Yes, yes, Peter. Keep going. In in so far as the adaptation <laughs> seems to be an issue, and yes, I have seen stage musicals. Thank you very have much, you? and when? especially filmed stage musicals. When, when this is great, but Peter, you can go to a football match with me, and you can go to a musical with me. Terrific. When was the last time you saw a musical? Um, uh, Jesus Christ, superstar! <laughs> <laughs> I was there at the launch. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's I think that's fixed volumes, but uh, it's lovely. Keep going, my friend. Yeah, I said to Jesus, please, can you sing up a bit? Now, yeah. anyway, <laughs> you have now offended three quarters of our listeners. So, so taken seriously, good golly. Oi, vey. All right, now moving on. Uh, Color purple. Uh, production design is uh, is excellent. Uh, the writing is a part of the problem, and the director whose previous film was uh, a, a musical film with Beyonce, Blitzer Bazawula, um, just doesn't cut it. Uh, he just doesn't understand the, the sort of integration of dramatic uh, scenes with musical sequences. They just yeah. don't gel. Um, the performances are very good. It was nice to see Whoopi Goldberg in a cameo and uh, veteran actor Louis Gossett Jr. 
as well as John Batiste, um, who, uh, of course, is in the uh, documentary uh, American Symphony, which you can see on Netflix. So, uh, and Coleman Domingo's in Rustin, which is also a film on uh, Netflix, which is worth seeing. So there's lots to admire about the film, but the ingredients don't add up. And, uh, and I was somewhat disappointed by the film. It sort of dilutes the whole racial uh, male subjugation of women, uh, African-American treatment um, of each other, as well as of women. It, it just dilutes the whole storyline. And that's what disappointed me greatly about the film. Uh, it's so distressing. I, I remember this from the original. The, the distress that you feel by watching these women being subjugated the way they are, I yeah, it's deeply, deeply distressing. Greg, your your take on the color purple? Yeah, look, I I still remember the um Steven Spielberg adaptation of nineteen eighty five there, and that was a fairly grim, bleak film. It was probably Spielberg's first foray into serious, I'm using quotation marks there, filmmaking, and it was nominated for ten Oscars. But it was a fairly brutal film to sit through there, um, with all its abuse, its domestic violence, its incest mental cruelty, poverty, all that kind of stuff. And the thought of it turning into a musical seemed, somehow seemed incongruous. Um, and that's one of the problems here. Uh, some of the musical numbers, even though they're vibrant, well-staged, up-tempo, um, mm. they are sometimes juxtaposed to scenes of rape and violence. And it just sort of... Yes. Uh, uh, ...grates a little bit there. I mean, the play the play is coming one eleven Tony nominations or something like that had a successful run on Broadway, um, but it doesn't quite translate to the screen as effortlessly. Um, apparently some 14 songs were also dropped from the Broadway musical. So this film, even though it's a musical, there's long gaps there where there's no song or dance numbers, but the drama plays out. Um, it's pretty close to the original film from what I remember <coughs> there. Um, but the, I mean, the music, unlike some recent musicals like Wonka, and Mean Girls, where the songs are instantly forgettable. Here's some of the numbers are actually full of bizarres and vibrant and song and dance. And um, that one, hell no, is obviously a clear standout, I thought, for me. But for a musical, there's a long patches of periods without a song there. Um, I agree, Fantasia Barino was fantastic, I think, as Celia here. And she has an emotionally draining performance there. She goes through a hell of a lot there. Um, Danielle Brooks is also really good here. She's been Oscar nominated for this role, and it's easy to see why there. Most of the men in this film are pretty nasty and unsympathetic, especially um, Dion Cole as their father of Afonso and Colin Domingo as um, Mister. Um, and and you can add to that, you can add to that the grandfather as well. Yeah. Um, the, yep. Yeah. Um, he's a pretty nasty piece of work as well. And, you know, the only notable man is Bobby Harpo, um, played by. Um, um, what's his name? Um, some Hawkins, Corey yeah, Hawkins, and yet and yet Harpo is seen as weak. Yeah, pretty tense. He doesn't stand up to his father in that. Yeah, um, mm. but the production values I think are really good. It's well shot by Dan Lonson There, a breeze new life into the story. Um, even if the um way that the numbers musical numbers are worked into this grim storyline do not always work. But ultimately, I thought it was a bit of a celebration of black women refusing to be beaten down by their situation, their bleak, their bleak situation. Jackie, I can only imagine, uh, as a woman, watching this must have really affected you. Oh, well, it, it is a terribly grim story, but on the, and scenario, the whole scenario, and, you know, 
being real life. But I, I mean, there's been um, musicals before that are based on, well, m- probably most musicals are based on a tragedy of some sort. And you can look back to Miss Saigon and things like that, which are heartbreaking. And the way that the um, the, the songs and uh, the chore- choreography are drawn into that was done well where this isn't. That the mood is all wrong. The songs don't drive the narrative, which they always should in a musical. And um, it made the film, in the end, just far too long. I think you could, that perhaps there was a, 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 they would, they could justify the happy nature and the colourful um, and the beautiful voices and singing performances, justify doing those songs in such a, such a, an awful situation as showing that the women faced, as you said, terrible things, but they were able to rise above that and keep, keep themselves living in optimism inside and eventually, of course, as we know, coming through at the end. So perhaps that's what the, the song and dance routines were trying to show, that inside the women they still had this um, optimism and, um, you know, strength, inner strength. Perhaps that um, that's what it was all about. But it, like you, uh, there was a lot of story to tell and, and it, the musicals didn't work for me. And even to me... Um, you know, you said there were good production values, but I thought that the the sets looked like sets so much that I thought it was trying to look like a stage musical. I mean, did you agree with that? Or did you think that they were trying to be authentic outdoor scenarios? I thought, I, I thought there was a, a difference, a distinct difference between the drama and the way it was shot as a drama to where it was shot as a musical. And I, yes. I thought that was a deliberate, obviously, well, I can only imagine it was a deliberate ploy on the, on the, the behalf of the director. But all the more reason that it was jarring. Yes. Rather than, yeah. So, I mean, to that extent, I agree. But, but it, yeah, again, I just, I think it, it points to the choices of the director and I, I think a misstep. I, I don't think, I don't think it's a terrible, you know, the, the sad part is the individual components of it, drama and the musical, are fine in and of themselves. But uh, I agree with Greg that it, it, having not seen it as a musical, it's difficult for me to judge it as a stage production, but it does not work on film. It does not. It, it works against itself. Having said that, there, I'm still going to give it a reasonable mark because the individual elements are strong. I think I'll, I'll be more generous than the rest of you on this. Let's start with you, uh, Peter, out of 10, The Colour Purple. Okay, uh, yes, there are some good ingredients in the film, but uh, I could only give it six out of ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg? Yeah, I'm going to give it six as well. As I said, the, the inclusion in the musical numbers jarred against some of the um, unrelentingly bleak nature of the film. You go from a um, bleak moment of domestic violence to an upbeat uh, song number, sorry. Uh, it just didn't quite click for me, but uh, yeah. it was beautifully made. Yep, M-rated 141 minutes, Jackie. Yeah, we're on a roll. I'm going six out of ten for the colour purple. Yeah, and I'm going six and a half to seven, simply for you know the reasons that I've mentioned. But yeah, uh, it could have been a much stronger film than it turned out to be. Now I, I want to put pause on Jair talking about movies to talk about the the w- this show that I, I mentioned at the outset, The Inheritance, and it's at forty five downstairs, which is forty five Flinders Lane, wonderful space. 
and it's set a generation after the height of the AIDS crisis. And it looks at what it's like to be young and gay in New York. So it explores love and legacy and what we owe to those that came before us. And at the heart of the work is this decent and caring character called Eric Glass, played by Charles Purcell. He's about to turn 33 when the play starts in 2015. He's an activist. He's been in a relationship with self-centred writer Toby Darling, played by Thomas Cantor, for seven years. Darling is flighty. He's had a troubled upbringing. He's about to get his first rather flimsy play produced, which is said to be autobiographical, but is in fact a created truth, so made up. We're introduced to Glass and Darling circumstances and to their colourful homosexual friends. Into the fray steps a young, intelligent, affluent wannabe actor called Adam McDowell, played by Carl Richmond, who surprises Darling with his gifted stagecraft, and he wants to fill the lead role in Darling's play. As Darling spends increasing time away from home and with McDowell, his feelings for McDowell develop. Same time, Glass befriends an older gay neighbour called Walter Poole, played by Dion Mills, who owns an historic country estate three hours from New York. He's socially responsible, Walter Poole, and he feels compelled or felt compelled to help HIV AIDS sufferers in their dying days in that safe space that is the country house. Paul's been with his partner, a billionaire property developer, Henry Wilcox, played by Hunter Persky, for 36 years. And in time, Glass gets closer to Wilcox as well. Wilcox has got a couple of kids, they're prats, from a previous marriage, was married to a woman, and both these kids work in his real estate business. As Darling's fortunes wanes, he finds himself attracted to a youngster by the name of Leo, also played by Carl Richmond, who's a destitute teen who bears a striking similarity to Adam McDowell. And before this is over, all roads lead back to where Walter Poole helped dying AIDS patients at the peak of the pandemic. This was inspired, I don't know whether, have any of you read Howard's End? You've seen the film, but have any of you read the story? No. No? Greg, I thought you might might have. No? Uh, no. Have you read any of Ian e. Forster's works or not? No. Okay. Yeah, I've seen the TV series and the movies. That's about it. That's about it. Okay. Well, this was inspired by Forster's novel, Howard's End, which was published back in 1910. Indeed, that book and other Forster works, such as Maurice, that was published after the author died, they helped drive the narrative. It's Forster, known here by his middle name Morgan, played again by Dion Mills, who acts as narrator in part one of The Inheritance and reappears briefly in part two. As an adept storyteller, he's prevailed upon by young gay boys who have writer's block to tell their tale. And in so doing, on more than the odd occasion, Forster adds creative tension. This is sensitive, it's complex, it's a heartfelt work, a great deal happens. And while the focus is on the characters' lives and loves, it's also about the social, political and economic conditions prevalent at the time. It was first produced in London in 2018. Theatrical excellence is its hallmark. It won the Olivier Award for Best New Play. It won the Tony Award on Broadway for Best Play. It's one of the most insightful works I've had the good fortune to see. The writing, the performances, the direction are exemplary starts with the authenticity that the writer Matthew Lopez brings to the fore. He, he's really masterful. His understanding of 
our best to introduce raw emotion into his prose is second to none. Humor, pathos, and a fierce sexual drive are the work's hallmarks. 13 actors, 12 males, one female, bring the story to life. The director, Kitan Petkowski, is adept at extracting the full impact of inheritance. And what struck me immediately was the passion and conviction of the entire cast. They give their all. Now, wait for this, folks. The inheritance parts one and two, which you can either see in one hit or over two nights or over consecutive weeks, lasts for about six hours and 20 minutes, right? So think Harry Potter, right? What about um, Angels in America, which is also broken into two parts? It's exactly that. It's exactly Angels in America. That's probably a much better uh, sort of uh, play to con- con- concern ourselves with and deals with some of the same subject matter as well, of course. So, look, it's, um, I mean, the actors are bold, they're brilliant, led so adroitly by Mills, Richmond, Purcell and Cantor, but really all of them shine. And look, 45 Downstairs, I've got to commend them so highly. This is the Australian premiere. It's such a powerful and poignant work. It's playing until the 11th of February. It's almost sold out. It's playing as part of Midsummer, but also in its own. And I just I just think it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, I, I just, it's interesting because the person I took said, Thank goodness you asked me to this. And, um, you know, the one thing I would say is that there are people who may be listening now uh, and others who wouldn't be listening who say, I'm not going to go, go, I'm not going to go along and see, I'm a heterosexual. I'm not going to go along and see a gay play. I'm not going to go along and see a gay film. I'm not going to go and see a film because it's in black and white. I'm not going to go and see a film where I have to read. Now, of, of course, it's their right to say that. But boy, are they missing out. Because this is a good example of just brilliant human making of something that's created from scratch and has such huge impetus, the inheritance at 45 downstairs. Having said that, um, I want to. I, I also want to mention one other show, and if we don't get through all the movies today, I accept it. But I, I don't think I spoke about Malevo last week because I hadn't seen it, but it's on at the State Theatre at Art Centre Melbourne, um, and tonight is your last opportunity to see it, and I would I would rush out to see it. Nothing, nothing like this that I've seen before. The only thing I can draw an analogy with to an extent, and it's not total, is remember the Irish dance sensation Riverdance? Did any of you see that when it first came out? Jackie? No? No, I didn't. Okay. Well... Okay. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, you, yeah, know, you're, you know, and Greg, you'd know when they're all standing on the front of the stage and, um, you know, they're, they're, you know, that, that line and they're, they're tapping and it's fantastic. Well, you've got a similar thing at one point in this show where you've got 13 artists, all of them holding bass drums, drumming in uniform, uniform unison and uniform, I might say, uh, at the front of the stage. It was fantastic. It's, it's a Malevo, M-A-L-E-V-O. It's all about electrifying rhythm. It's about dance, drums, and more than that. And it's, it's, they're Argentinians, and it's, they're mesmerizing. It's mesmerizing machismo is what I'd say. Uh, they've got, there's a four-piece band. They hold the audience in the palms of their hands, these 13 artists in the band. 80 minutes without a break, 
created by the director, the choreographer and the dancer, Matthias Jamie, in 2015. It's an all-male group specialising in what's known as Malambo, which I knew nothing about. That's traditional Argentinian folk dance, which has got a great deal of virility and dexterity to it, performed by gauchos. That was what they were the ones who originally performed Malambo. And the gauchos flourished from the mid-18th to the mid-19th centuries. And they were nomadic, colourful horsemen who occupied the vast grasslands of South America. And they attained folk hero status. So Jamie and the company reconceived Malambo and fused it with other dance styles, including flamenco. And it's toured the world, Malevo. And just minutes in, you can understand why. This group was named an official cultural ambassador to the national identity of Argentina. Talk about good. And the workout, Jackie, I, I tell you something, these guys glisten by the end. The performers and the audience as well are left breathless. And it's about non-stop thrills, quite intoxicating. We're introduced to the 13 as they take to the stage topless, wearing tight black pants and black boots. And as I say, they carry with them these bass drums and drumsticks. And in formation, including 454, and in total control, they beat the drums and they click the sticks at a frenetic pace, always in sync. And then, I mean, the applause is like off the scale. And then they ditch the drums uh, and these sort of artisans of tempo introduce stomping, whip cracking, and notably, and I'll probably mispronounce this, the Boliadorus. Now, the Boliadorus was a hunting tool used by the gauchos to bring down animals. So on stage, it consists of a short cord with a weighted ball on the end. Sometimes the ball deliberately hits the ground and makes a, a strong sound. But the exponents of these boliadorus hold two of them at a time, which they rotate at lightning speed, creating whirring sounds. Just magnificent to watch. I mean, that's a real highlight. And the band, electric violinist, drummer, guitarist, and squeeze box aficionado, they've got their time to shine as well. All of Malevo is jaw-dropping, and my hands became sore from clapping. The outpouring of love in the room is palpable. It's exuberance personified. This is sexy, it's seductive, playing at State Theatre, Art Centre Melbourne. Tonight's your last opportunity to see Malevo. So some pretty good shows doing the rounds as we speak. Now, I've gone blank. What Talk me through what we're next going to talk about, Peter. What have we not talked about movie-wise? All of us strangers and Priscilla. Okay. So I'm just going to quickly look at whether we've got an, an adequate time frame we have. So at least we'll, we'll, we'll go through one, and if we've got time for both, we will do that. Um, okay, we, Elvis came out, and it's it's been applauded as a movie. And this is almost like uh, the other side of the equation, isn't it? Because this is told from the perspective of Priscilla Presley. And she was originally... I, I didn't know this. I, I didn't study enough, enough. Did you know her maiden name before seeing Priscilla, Peter? No. No. I did. Bayou? You did. You did know Bayou. And Jackie? No, no, I didn't. You didn't? Okay. So, yeah, Priscilla Bayou was only 14 when she met 24-year-old Elvis at a party he held in his rented home in Germany because he was there undertaking military service. And that was where their mutual infatuation started. And it's also the starting point for this movie, which is written and directed by Sophia Coppola, based on the book Elvis and Me by Priscilla Presley with Sandra Harmon. So you think about it. 
Elvis at 24 was already a bona fide star when he met Priscilla, whose father, who was a captain, had been deployed to the same base where Elvis was stationed, and the captain took with him his wife and daughter. Now, it was the man who booked the music for Elvis that first approached Priscilla Bayou to come to Elvis's house because Elvis was keen to see hometown girls because he was in Germany. And being in only the ninth grade, Bayou, while she was flattered, rightly said that her parents wouldn't let her. And it took some convincing. But Elvis was onto it. And yet more overtures to Bayou's father, who had to be convinced. Uh, and after more of those, Bayou started hanging out with Elvis regularly. And then Elvis's term of national service finished. He was back into the music scene, leaving Germany behind. Also left in his wake was Bayou who he had promised to keep in touch with, but that never happened. She'd almost given up on him when the phone rang. And it was Elvis, who flew her back to the United States for a visit, and it was there that she was swept off her feet at Graceland, his palatial home. And eventually, Bayou was allowed to finish her high school in the United States while her parents remained in Germany on the condition that she graduated. So Priscilla the movie presents the titular character as besotted initially. Still, she was also frequently abandoned by Elvis while he pursued his singing career and also film appearances. And he's shown as self-consumed, domineering, dictatorial, times verbally abusive and angry and emotionally fragile. He's painted as a pill popper and a womanizer who tells Priscilla what to wear, how to look, while more often than not surrounded by his mates and staff. So she puts up with a lot, a great deal, waiting around, being available at his beck and call, not, not to overlook his flings. Kaylee Spaney. I thought she did a great job inhabiting the lead role. Dominant portrayal. She transitions Priscilla from naive and vulnerable to having her eyes open, becoming sad and disillusioned. And I could really feel her pain. Jacob Elordi is the next big thing. Imbues Elvis with childlike qualities as well as a much harder edge. And as Elvis's father, Vernon, Tim Post is largely unsympathetic. Harry Cohen fares better as Priscilla's well-meaning father, Captain Bayou. I, I thought it was only fitting to get a perspective on the king from the person who arguably was the closest to him, namely Priscilla. And I did like the warts and all portrayal, showing it was hardly a bed of roses for her. And I mean, Priscilla Presley, you know, it's her take. Call me a softie, but I, I was really still invested in the first half of Priscilla, especially the love story ahead of the inevitable downfall. And look, there's there's been suggestions of, you know, is he a pedophile, all of that stuff. Um, but, um, you know, I, I mean, I took it at face value. I've, I've seen, I think it was on 60 Minutes, where a number of people who he basically um, uh, dated said nothing untoward happened. Um, it's just that I think most of us would find it odd that a 24-year-old shows so much interest in a 14-year-old. And look, as the news tightens, Priscilla's shown living her life in a gilded cage while Elvis reinforces the adage that all that glitters is not gold. So, Greg King, Priscilla. Uh, yes, this has troubled me a little bit. I remember Elvis, um, the Baz Luhrmann film, which was so much more dynamic, um, gave us a bit more insight into Elvis itself. Um, this film, unfortunately, is not a very flashing portrait of of Elvis. Um, but, and you don't get any sense of him as... Um, an entertainer either, um, because you don't see him sing or do much there, so you really don't get much of a portrait of him. And um, apparently before she died, 
Lisa Marie Presley spoke out about the film and said it was unnecessarily vindictive and nasty, so she wasn't a fan of what they planned to do. But like most of um, Sofia Coppola's films, it's gorgeous on the surface. It's what great cinematography, costumes, um, makeup, all that, set design, production design are all fantastic. But I found the film dramatically inert there. Um, didn't do much for me there. I agree. Kaylee Spaney was good as Priscilla there. And Jacob Elordi, who was in Saltburn and good in that, is also good here as Elvis. There's no Elvis songs here on the soundtrack. We never get to see him perform live. We don't get any sense of him performer. Apparently, the Presley um, estate refused to let them have any access to his music, which is a bit of a troubling um, starting point when you're making a film about an entertainer. Um, but the two lead performances were really good. But, uh, yeah, I just found it um, an impressionistic take on the material and the languorous pacing kept me at an emotional distance. Yeah, I look, did you did you not... I mean, I, I like the first half better than the second. Did you not at all, Greg? I mean, if you had to divide it up a bit. Probably the first half a little bit better, yeah. The second yeah. half is just a bit unrelentingly bleak for me. Yeah. Um, Jackie, what about you? Yeah, well, not only bleak, but kind of bland. I mean, yeah. sure, um, Elvis himself, we didn't see him in concert like we did in Baz Luhrmann, which was oh, the real you know, power show. That was just so enjoyable. Um, and, but so, but that's fine because this was based on a different kind of story. In fact, her story rather than his story. But she actually just wasn't a really interesting person. She started off as a rather mousy, ordinary schoolgirl. And then, you know, she was like Elvis's pet. And I just didn't find her very interesting with a, uh, and I have trouble knowing where we no we don't know if she was actually like that or whether this is just a film that's representing something that we weren't there we weren't in the room um Sophie Coppola wasn't in the room so it, it's just all really you know one person's story and uh, you know from one one point of view uh no didn't find it particularly interesting he's a bit of a it did come across very strongly what an enigma he was you know this deeply religious um, you know, with this platonic relationship and yet, you know, kind of passionate and saucy at the same time. And, and that was all kind of a bit weird too. So, and as I thought the concerts that were done in Las Vegas, showing that he was on stage and, you know, um, sweeping the world, I agree. They just weren't very well done. Possibly the best thing I liked were a few of the little vignettes we saw along the way um, that showed his character, how he won over the nuns and, um, you know, I was posing for photos with them and the nuns were all giggling behind their hands. Little, little things like that were kind of sweet, but they don't make a film. Yeah. Peter? I, I Okay, I'm going to be quite different to everyone else because I quite like the film, uh, Priscilla, and, and I need to make the point very clear. This is not a film about Elvis. It's a film about Priscilla Presley, who yes. executive produced the film and gave advice to Sofia Coppola about uh, her own life story to put into the film. So what Sofia has done, and she's done this in her other films like Somewhere, Virgin Suicides, Lost in Translation, Bling Ring, and The Underrated Beguiled, is to look at the loneliness and the treatment of women in particular uh, and of, of people who are thrown into situations and have to try and cope. 
And um, what uh, this film portrays is how this uh, teenage girl um, was forced to to grow up and to understand and to um, and to be part of this relationship, but also part of a family and uh, and part of an entertainer who was so controlling and uh, and wanted her to behave in particular ways or be particular things. I, I think Katie Spanny does a good job. I think maybe another actress could have done even better. I was thinking of Kerry Mulligan actually as I was watching this film, um, and uh, and Kaylee was in on the basis of sex, so she hasn't had too many uh, major roles. But um, uh, and Jacob Elordi as as Presley is presented in a somewhat sketchy way, as should be the case because. Um, his domination and drugs and and everything that's in the film. It's really about her uh, reaction and treatment by uh, Elvis and the family. And yes, Greg, you're quite right. The uh, estate refused to allow Elvis Presley's songs to be used. But what they've done is, is to use songs of the period. And I think they've used those quite effectively to illustrate um, Priscilla's situation and and her life story. Uh, look, I really like the film. I think there's there's a lot to admire. Yes, it's not overly melodramatic, um, but I don't think it has to be. I think it tells its story in a quiet and effective way. Mm. And so, what what about you in terms of first half versus second half? Did you think it was consistently appealing, or did you think the first half was more appealing than the second? Well, the first half was more about her innocence and getting to know yeah. the family and all that. Yeah. And the second half was the, was the reality setting so, in and, and so how did she you cope but, with that. But did you did you think there was more to enjoy or or what? I'm just curious as to whether you like me d- divided the film somewhat in mind while you were watching it. No, I didn't divide it at all. I, I saw it as a journey, which uh, which gradually became more problematic, and and so I didn't see it as a first half, second half film. Um, okay, well. I didn't think it was a bad film, um, so I I think you and I will probably give it high, much higher marks than the other two. So let's start with Greg for Priscilla, rated M, one hundred and thirteen minutes, five out of ten. Wow. Okay, Jackie. Yeah, it was a six out of ten for me. Okay, well, Peter, I think you and I, I'm not sure which one of us is going to be high. I think uh, I'm giving it a seven and a half. I I actually thought quite a lot of it, uh, even though it wasn't as taken by the second half. What about you? Yeah, I liked the film too, and I uh, gave it 7 out of 10. There we go. So I've given it the high mark. All right. Now, so we've we've gone Priscilla, and we've got to now go overall because our time is up. So we were, are going to hold, well, what's, it, what's it called? All, all of us strangers. For, for next week. We'll talk about it then. Thank you very much. I suggest that people go and see all of us strangers in the meantime. Ah, yes. So I agree. So that yes, absolutely. Terrific. Thank you very much, folks. Be good to one another. Be kind to one another. We'll catch you next week on First on Film and Entertainment.